Thanks be to God for the beauty and the power of his word. Man, I love when we have scripture readers. Man, I'm excited to be in James. And I'm excited to be back. Man, it's so great to be here. For those of you that have just been uh, at our church for eight weeks, you have no idea who I am. Um, I've been gone for the majority of the summer. I think I kicked off the book of James, and then I just said, hey, you know what? This is James. I think I'll take a break um, and let these guys carry it. But I I just want to thank the guys that carried the teaching here, um, Dan, Dave, and Mike here in our church, and then some friends of mine, Rob Chefakoya, Chuck MacArthur, and Tom Rossi did an amazing job um, while I was away. I was always watching on the stream. You probably didn't know it, but I snuck in here a few times. I was in the back, unless you might have heard a shout or two because I get really excited during worship. Um, but man, it was been, it's been a great break and a testament to our staff and the people that have, um, were able to, I was able to leave and just not think about um, you know, what the kind of the intricacies of things that can happen, even in the little bumps you have along the way with a viral pandemic that's kind of moving and doing different things that we can't, we can't help or, you know, we have to respond to. And they did an amazing job and are still doing a great job. And I just wanted to, to say thank you. But I mean, I, I am excited. One thing that I'll just say, uh, and I don't mean this to be alienating to anybody that um, you're new to church and you're still kind of fig- trying to figure the Jesus thing out, but I can't, just in my personal life and where I am with my family and just the season that I've been through, I think the season that our community has been through and our country has been through, I can't imagine living life without Jesus. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, beyond the idea of Jesus and Christianity as a religion, this kind of appendage to life where it's just like, this is the thing we do in the Southeast, but I'm talking about a relationship with Jesus because I'm prone to wander and try to find ways to heal my own heart, try to find ways to heal my own sadness, try to find ways to, 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 to readjust the, the, the situations and the circumstances in my life, and I do those things on my own. But I always know that I have a place to go home. I know I have a loving Savior where I can fall to my knees and say, I've forsaken you for other things. And he's so gracious. And the other thing is, is I can't imagine traveling through life without a church family. And I've got people here um, that above all else, I would cut, like I've said this many times. If this, if I wasn't leading here on staff here, you know, part of the church in that way, um, this would be my church. I love it here. Going to other churches, there's some amazing churches we were able to visit, able to talk to some other church leaders, worship leaders, and staff people, and learned a lot. But um, just the Spirit of God is here, um, and I love that it has nothing to do with me and everything to do with Him and what He's doing in and through you, because you are the You are the carriers, you are the mission, you are God's plan A uh, to lead people um, into the unending ocean of grace, to invite people there um, that they might experience what you've experienced. So um, I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for being family. And I just missed all of you. I look around, I'm just like, I just missed you people. And it's so good to be up here. If you got your Bible, turn with me to James chapter 4. That is where we're going to be. None of James is uh, like, you know, really soft and fluffy. Um, he really comes right at you. And I kind of I like that about James. Like, I don't, um, it's not that I think I'm the best preacher, but I think one of the things that you're trying to accomplish when you're teaching the Word of God, or even when you're just speaking in general, is to create tension so that people lean in and go, hey, there's a problem here that I really need solved, and we all kind of can relate to it. Well, James, he gets on the ground right away. Like, I, you know, Dan preached a few weeks back, and I said, that's the good thing about James is you don't have to figure out how do I create tension and make sure that we get this on the ground so that people don't go, well, this, this sermon's one I'll send to somebody, um, but I don't need this one. 
uh, James gets on the ground and, and gets in areas where we all can relate and we all can get it. And when it comes to quarreling and fighting, I think we can all relate. I mean, it's just one of those things. If not, you know, in the past, now we do know that. Like, I mean, you talk about a season where the, the, the ability for the human race to team up, pick sides, and quarrel and fight. I think we've gotten it, right? I mean, I think we're in a season where that happens. And it, it happens at a very young age. Like, we, we, we learn how to quarrel and fight young. I mean, you might think, like, you hold that newborn baby. If it's your first, I mean, your second and third, you kind of know it's getting ready to happen anyway. But you're thinking, <laughs> all of sin and falling short of the glory of God. But little Timmy here, he hasn't fallen yet. Just give it a second. He'll be biting some kid's head in the nursery, grabbing his toy and saying, mine. I mean, it's just going to happen. I mean, they, they go, it's, it's the sinful nature uh, comes in and changes things immediately. And we begin to fight at a very young age. I remember being, I think it, you know, you, as you grow up and you're a teenager, fighting, the, like the, the actual, like, engaging in fights, it's usually with your parents because you're passive with your friends. There's drama with your friends, and then you come home, and you're honest, and you fight with your parents. Like, you don't say stuff to your friends just like, you know, you hurt my feelings. I mean, sometimes I guess you can in, in groups of, you know, people, but it's usually going back to mom and dad. But then I was in college ministry for many years, and I loved college freshmen because they had no idea what they were getting ready to get into. They're like, I got my new roommate. She was my best friend in high school, and we're going to get along so great. And then they, you, you live with somebody and it's, I mean, it changes you. Like, it begins to shape you. Because you are, you grew up this way, they grew up this way, and then you get together, and it is a, it can be a, a bomb. I mean, did anybody have any tension in college or post-college with your roommates? I mean, everybody in the room that's in that zone and remembers that, I remember <laughs> moving in with two guys that I loved. I mean, I love these guys. I still love them today. Um, but I, and I won't lift my own, but I, I was the, there's neat people, and then there's not neat people, right? I was a neat person. I just like things clean. I like to host, you know. I like people to come in and go, it smells good in here, you know. I, you know, at that time, you're, you know, college, you're trying to, you know, it's like, that's the zone where you're looking around going, who am I going to marry, you know? So when they come over and people come over, you're like, hey, girls are coming over. We need to keep the, at least the kitchen in the bathroom, man. Just the kitchen and the bathroom. And they couldn't do that. Like, dishes were always, there was not a dish, like, cabinets, empty, sink, full. Always. And I, it drove me crazy. Those two jokers didn't work, and I worked. And that was another thing. I was just, and, and you learn how to deal with conflict. Like, you're, and you're passive in the beginning. As a college freshman, you're passive. You're just kind of dropping hints going, maybe we should have a system on the dishes. And, you know, you do it like, hey, I found out this new miraculous thing. Like, if you'd eat... And then you like grab the bowl and the spoon and you wash it right then and you just put it away. It's a lot easier than having to get the jackhammer out and chisel it off two days from now. And you would passively say things like that. I got so mad one time. I got this metal tin. My wife remembers. I took all like all that came home from work. And I mean, dishes were you know about that high out of the sink. They're just laying around doing whatever. And I walk in, and I'm not yelling because I'm passive and don't know how to engage in conflict yet. So I just took a tin and just started, I wanted to clean the kitchen. People were coming over, and I wanted it to look nice, wanted to clean, just get clean. I was like, but I'm not doing all these idiots' dishes. Put them in this big tin, all the dishes, and just stuck them outside. And just said, that's it. And they came home, and they walked in. They're like, dude, the kitchen's clean. Nice job, bro. And they went in the cabinet. They're like, where are all the dishes? 
And I said, look out back. All the dishes are they're out there. And they went outside and they saw the huge tin. And I thought they were going to be mad and it was going to be time to engage. And then my roommate grabs the hose and he goes, this is awesome. <laughs> and just started spraying the dishes. And he's an idiot. But we learn, we, we learn how to fight. Like there's a, there's a reason that we fight. It's interesting. I, I read, you know, you probably have missed my uh, articles in psychology today. But I, I read this. <laughs> This article about, I love the, just human behavior and when it comes to conflict. And he said conflict kind of can be divided into five areas. And he, he talks about goal conflict, uh, which is we have different goals. I mean, I think about this in the workplace. Like you have goal conflict. Like, you know, James is talking about quarreling and fighting. Where does this come from? We have goal conflict. Like my goals are different than yours. And sometimes you're working for somebody, you're in your cubicle, you got projects, your scale is different than your boss is looking at the overall vision, everything that's happening. You know, he's got a different scope. You don't understand what he's trying to do and he doesn't really understand that you've got a client that really needs this deal. He's asked you to do this, but then he wants you to go do this and this and this. And you're like, if I don't get this done, all that's going to blow up. And then there's conflict in the goal area. There's personality conflict. I think we all understand this one. Like, we don't quite know why we want to fight them, but they just see them. And you're just like, I'd like to punch you in the face just looking at you. I'm kidding. But you have people that are like that. I think the, one of the best examples of watching humans operate and deal with personality conflict is watching the show Survivor. Anybody watch Survivor? I mean, they'll be hating on somebody that he didn't do anything. He's just like, man, we just don't like him. He's just weird, and we're just going to completely oust him. He's off the island for no, he, he won challenges, but we're ousting him just because we don't want to be with him for the next 40 days. I mean, it's just personality conflict. I act different than you, and there's that type of conflict. There's resource conflict, which is less common here in the United States because we have tons of resources. But this is like, hey, there's not enough rice i got to fight for my family. We are going to go down and go to fisticuffs because there's not enough stuff. I mean, brothers and sisters fight in the house. If you grew up with a big family, it's dinner time. You know, there might be some fights over the last buttered biscuit. But, you know, we don't have as much of that. Information processing conflict. We talk about this on our staff because we're split pretty much down the middle with inward processors and outward processors. I think the conflict probably gets caused more by the outward processor. Um, but, uh, you got people that, you know, they think before they speak, they plan and they're, they're more gracious and compassionate. And then you've got the people that are just trying to work it out and they're working it out by saying things that might be hurtful or just stupid before they thought about it. Um, and that can get you into a fight. And then this is a big one. And I think this is the one that we've experienced here in the last couple of years, uh, in our country, uh, and across the globe when, when something happens that's common to all of us, but we, our filter's different. Our values are different. So values conflict. I am a Christian and you're not a Christian. Our values are different. We can get along under certain circumstances if we, you know, create boundaries about what we're talking about, but we're going to have some conflicts on values. Simply how you grew up. I mean, even the cleaning thing, going back to that example. I mean, some people grew up a different way where it was just like, that's what you did. Like, you got up in the morning, you made your bed, you cleaned all the stuff, you liked it nice and orderly, and you kind of got used to that. And then you live with people that are like, underwear on the floor was what we did in our house, just all the time. Just one piece of underwear right there, all the time. And I didn't live that way, and that causes conflict. So big values, small values. But James is talking about fighting, and he... he, he asks a question right off the top, 
And then he begins to answer it. Now, he doesn't dive deep right away, but he slowly traverses beyond the fight itself. Like, hey, I mean, if it was Rodney King in 1992, he would just say it this way. Why can't we just all get along? Some of you don't remember Rodney King, but he took a beating. You know, the police you know, unjustifiably beat him. It was on film. The L.A. almost burned to the ground because of it. And his response, he was pretty gracious. I mean, Rodney King didn't do everything right, but in the way that he responded and the things that he said, he, he didn't want to divide. He didn't want any more violence. He just said, why can't we just all get along? And that has been quoted more times than I can think. Some people don't, young people don't even know where that came from. But James is saying it in a different way. Why can't we just all get along? And our our way of avoiding, and, and you know, what, what is the, the things that we do, the strategies that we do to avoid what he's talking about in verse 1 in causing fights and quarreling? I mean, for us, we can avoid somebody, avoid the topic, you know, think that time heals all wounds. But James wants to go deeper into the heart of who you are as a follower of Jesus. If you've been saved by grace, if you've gone down into the depths with Jesus and his death in your baptism and raised to new life, what does it look like for you to live life in church world? without quarreling. Live life in a community or in your family without quarreling. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cover five, two big questions, which are at the beginning and the end, and then questions along the way as we traverse the scripture. But the first one is, why do we fight and quarrel? I mean, the easy one. Um, it's not easy, but it's like the obvious one. And then what is it? He mentions in that scripture, if you were listening and reading, he mentions that you and I, because he likes to drop bombs on you, doesn't pull any punches, says, you're adulterous. You, in the church, are adulterous people. And then he says something that I think needs explaining, which, what does it mean that God is jealous? If God is sovereign on high, if he knows everything, if he sees everything, if, if all things were created by him and for him, he put the sun, the moon, the stars in place, he controls everything, then why would he be jealous? Because if I controlled everything, then I would had no need to be jealous. I would have what I want. How is it possible that God could be jealous that somebody took you away from him? And then number four, how in the world, how in the world are we supposed to be? This idea of being in the world, not of the world, this idea of, you know, are we supposed to, how ingrained in culture are we supposed to be? How much he says, he, he, James says friendship if the, with the world is what you just heard, is how, you know, he says we're not supposed to be in friendship with the world. What does that mean? Because this is where we are. Jesus said, what? Do not take them out of the world but protect them from the evil one. I don't want them. They are plan A to carry the gospel to the nations. We are not supposed to move out to a remote place, live off the grid with bonnets and churn on butter. That is not the way that we're supposed to live life. So what does it mean to not be friends with the world? And what's the boundary line of how we live life? What does it mean that he, being God, gives more grace? I love that because I, I read that. He talks about him being jealous right there. And then immediately it says he gives more grace. What does he mean by that? And then the end to resolve all of our tension. How does the fighting stop? How does it stop in our homes, in our church, in our community? All right. Got your Bible. Let's dive in. I love it. So why do we fight and quarrel? Verse one, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Your desire but you desire, but do not have, so you kill. I mean, James ain't playing. Some of your translations say murder. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. 
You know what I love about James and what he does? He creates a boundary line here and he takes some things off the table that I always want to say first. He goes internal. He says, they come from your desires that battle where? Within you. I mean, I don't know that we want to admit, but we're our own worst enemy. And what our our tendency is when we think about quarrels and fights is what? Them. They did it. This is why. I'm I'm advocating for a certain way of life. I'm advocating for a certain idea that seems to be the better idea. I, I want things to be this way. I mean, a clean kitchen and a clean bathroom seems like everyone on the planet would want that. Cockroaches might not, but the rest of the world wants it clean. We, we want to point to the outside rather than the inside. We want to point at our circumstances. We want to point at the people around us, the people that are in the way of the things that we want. That's what we do. And we look around and that's the reason we're fighting. But James takes that off the table and says, isn't it your internal desires that's causing you to fight? Because you're on a planet, guess what? With a whole bunch of other sinful people trying to satisfy their sinful desires. And we're all wandering around bumping into each other. And people are getting in the way of the things that I want that will make me happy. The things that I want that will save me and rescue me. Because God built eternity in the hearts of men. He built a desire to be in in peace. To have shalom. To have this thing that, that is translated in scripture as as it should be. In the Garden of Eden there was shalom. And that's beyond just having peace. That's as it should be. Everything is the way that it should be. My mindset, my internal nature, and everything that's around me is at peace. It's the way that God intended it. And guess what? We live on a planet where the world right now, because of sin and its brokenness, is still fractured in need of redemption. Whether you're a Christian or not, you cannot look around and not think, this world needs a Savior It needs to be redeemed. And there's not shalom. But how is it possible? Because the Bible says it's possible that you and I could have peace. Despite our circumstances and despite the world around us. How is that possible? James says, you desire but you do not have so you kill. You covet. And what's interesting is if you continue to read that article I wrote where he breaks down the James is getting into something so, so long before the, the psychologist got into it. And we're going to get into some neuropsychology today just because it's fun. Um, but this guy, his name's uh, Dale James Dwyer. He says, conflict is basically, he says the same thing that James says, is basically a disagreement through which everybody involved perceives a threat to what? Their needs, interests, values, and goals. Inevitably, we all have disagreements and conflicts. Those with whom we work, lead, and follow, whether you're brought up, whether they're brought out in the open, this is kind of an important distinction, or left unsaid. I think there's the internal fight. I think there's things where we have fights with people and they have no idea that we're fighting with them. You ever had that? Like you're just angry. You're going to bed angry and they're just like, I don't even know. I think they love me. I mean, they have no idea that you want to choke them. I mean, it's, that's just the way, the way that it is. I'm glad that he said that because it's, it's not just engagement face-to-face where we're not passive, but we're actually working out conflict. It's, I'm mad at them. I saw what they posted on Facebook, and I unfollowed them, and they have no idea that I unfollowed them. Um, Adam Young, who uh, some of you might listen to his, his podcast. It's um, really good, The Place We Find Ourselves. It is 
Yeah, he's a Christian, uh, went to seminary, but he's also in the neuropsychology world. Um, he says this about what we're trying to do, like when it comes to the internal nature of who we are and what's going on, these desires that are inside of us that James is talking about. He says, we will do anything to try to make our bodies a more pleasant place to be in. We will do anything to make our bodies a more pleasant place to be. When your body is frequently dysregulated, which is, I mean, it's, it's not in shalom. It's dysregulated. It's, it's, it's not in the right place. There is a tremendous pull towards addictions and compulsions. And I added this right here. It's not part of the quote. And quarrels. We are prone to those things when we're dysregulated. And he talks about something called affect and affect regulation. I don't know if anybody, it's a neuropsychology term. Um, you know, you got Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which kind of tells you, you know, how we operate as human beings. Like the first needs that we have to take care of are survival needs. Then we move up into kind of the, the social needs. Like, am I successful or not? How do people look at me? Do I look, you know, am, am I successful in the world? And you get to the self-actualization. You kind of move up Maslow's hierarchy of needs. This is a, a newer approach talking about who we are as human beings, neuropsychology kind of stuff in the moment to moment. And he puts it on a 1 to 10 scale, These, the, the, the uh, psychologists and psychiatrists that use this scale, about are we regulated or not. And this is what he says. And this is, this is down to the roots of where, where James is really kind of leading us. He says, affect, this thing that's inside of us that, that we're all trying to do as human beings, refers to your moment-by-moment moment experience of your internal bodily sensations. Think of affect on a scale of 1 to 10, where... One represents completely numb and shut down. I've shut down, something's gone really wrong. And ten represents the opposite end of the spectrum, panic, rage, or terror. On this scale, the five-six range represents a slight feeling of relaxed excitement. You're alert, present, and attentive. That's where we all want to be. I want to be in the five-six. That's where I want to be. And when you become dysregulated, your body's greatest need is to return to a regulated state in that five-six zone. I think that's very interesting because as human beings, there's the five, six for me, biblically, and Adam, Adam Young is, I mean, he, he's a great, he leads you to the gospel in, in the way that he talks about neuropsychology, which I love, but that's shalom. Adam Young talks about shalom as it should be. We're all doing this and God created that. The eternity in the hearts of men is the shalom of the garden that we all long for. The redemption that we long for. To not be in the one, to not be in the ten, but to be in the five, six zone where everything is as it should be. Now the Bible says that we could be in that place of shalom. We could be in that place of peace despite the people around us and despite the circumstances that we walk through. It is the miracle of being followers of Jesus. But it's not something, James obviously is like, there's not some autopilot where you hit a button, I'm now a Christian and I've just got shalom in the home. I mean, it, can we just say that as Christians? We, I think the world thinks that we think that about, about ourselves. Like, we've got it all figured out. Nice, neat, and tidy Christian life. I followed Jesus and everything got better. But James doesn't talk about the autopilot. He's, he's going, hey, why can't we just all get along? Stop it, he says. I mean, he's literally telling the church, quit it. Stop it. But he's doing it with a basis. He's doing it with a gospel basis. Some people say that, that James is, is not doing it with a gospel basis. That was Paul. But we've, I think you guys have learned over eight weeks that James is not the straw gospel. 
It is laden with the gospel. James was the brother of Jesus. Dave did an amazing job saying his connectedness with Jesus let everybody know that everything that he was saying was leading you in the place of saying the answer is Jesus. Living life with Jesus. It's not working or trying or striving. It's, there's an engine behind that working. There's an engine behind that, a freedom behind what would move us into that place of actually not fighting, not arguing, but loving one another across the table and across the globe. Now, the problem that exists that James is uprooting when he says, it's your desires within you. He says, it's your desires within you that are making you want to murder other people. That's because we're dysregulated. And our solution to getting regulated as human beings, because we all do it subconsciously, is i got to figure out a way to get into 5-6. And when you're dysregulated, we try to regulate ourselves any way possible. What does he say? How do we regulate? Addictions, right? We, we do things. We, we, we try to create a zone. Like if, if I'm... If I'm, in the, if I'm amped up and fearful and I'm in a seven, eight, nine zone and I've kind of gotten wired up, what, what am I going to do? I mean, I'm, I need to get myself back in the five, six. You know, I'm coming home from work and, you know, I'm just hoping that the home is at a five, six. You know what I'm saying? But usually it's not. You know, there's something happening. Somebody owes some money that I didn't know about and I got to pay somebody and somebody's got this and I, got, and I look at the bank account and then, and then I go and I realize that they, there's, there's no more seasons of this, this show that I love and I can't watch it anymore. And that's what's keeping me in my five, six. I can't regulate. And for us, it's the world around us. And we cloak our, our, our own self-regulation in, in things like you know, this is the way that it should be. I have a whole team of people that agree with me on this particular issue. I mean, that's where we are in the world. It's like we, we, we've used the team mentality. One of the ways that we've dealt with, because the, the pandemic jacked up the 5-6. I mean, immediately people were one end or the other. Like it dropped in and the discomfort on all levels created a disruption. And what did we do to, to, to self-regulate? All of a sudden we looked at each other. And said, you're my problem. You're not wearing a mask. Or you are wearing a mask making me feel guilty. Or you're not vaccinated. You are vaccinated. You're the reason that the world is the way that it is. And we all have our own opinion, misinformation or information that we have that we're trying to, to, to boil, boil around. And I'm not making any grand pronouncement. I'm saying that when we, we sometimes cloak advocacy in, in, a, in, a, in a place that really is us trying to regulate. My need to say a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend who has a doctor friend that posted a YouTube thing says this is what we should be doing. And I want the whole world to know. Sometimes it got real quiet in here. Sometimes that's just you regulating. That's just you going, your, your frustration because you've got all these people on your team and these people think they're right and your need to be right is all mixed up in all of that stuff. And if you dig a little bit deeper, which James does, it's really about your internal desires. It's really about, I, we like to team up, you know? I mean, we do it in sports. I mean, football season's upon us, and I love it. But we, we team up with sports, and we, we kind of are nice. You know, most of my friends are Gators anyway, you know, and I'm a Seminole. So we can, get, we can get along. But you get into more serious areas, all of a sudden we get on this team, and we get around those people that are on that team, and that 
regulates our affect. I get around these people. We're five, six. We all agree. We talk about this is the way things should be. This is the way the world should be. And then this other team over here. I'm going to get over here. And then we get across the thing and we get dysregulated and we go back to our little team and we get regulated. It's this fragile thing that we can't control. The pandemic has definitely brought that up. I mean, for me in college, what was I doing with the dishes? I needed shalom in the home. One of the ways that I felt at, like comfortable because I wanted things neat and tidy. My dad was crazy, just obsessive compulsive about cleanliness. And it drove me crazy, but that stuff bleeds over on you as a kid. And I, I, went, I, I would come home from work and I'd be like, I want this has got to be this way. And it's his fault and his fault. You are dirty and you are dysregulating me. And my response to that, often one of the ways that we regulate, one of the things that we do in our sin, in our brokenness, to deal with the hole in our hearts that only Jesus can fill, is we want to put ourselves above other people. And you know what I would do? I would just clean. I would clean to judge them. Like I would make things so clean that I knew that they could never clean that good. I would clean my room. I had a roommate. He had, his room was such a disaster. You couldn't see the floor and people would come over and open it. They couldn't even get the door open. It was like pulling it and mine would be like zen. And they would go around the house and it would be filthy. And then people would walk in to my room and it'd be like, oh, I mean, it was clean. I mean, I had a, you know, I had a duvet. I mean, I might lose my man card, but I like, boom. <laughs> It was sweet in there. The desk was all organized, pen. I mean, you go in there, and people would end up all in my room. Like, we'd have a party, and there'd be a whole bunch of people jammed in my room. And I'd be standing at the foot of my room, just kind of looking at them, down at them, elevating myself, going, see? This is what happens right here. And that's me, because this felt good. That got me to a 5-6. You guys, dirt bags. Me, clean. Ladies love me. They don't love you. And I felt good. Regulation. It's what we do in our sin. And we do that in life. We put ourselves in positions so that we feel superior, more intellectual. You know, we, we, we have all kinds of things that we do. And James goes on. If we jump back into this text right in the middle of verse 2, he says, You don't have things because you don't ask God. He's saying, You're looking for things in a different place, looking for ways to regulate. And you, ha you don't have them because you don't ask. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, that you spend what you get on your pleasures. He's saying all you're trying to do is fix yourself. You're trying to, you're, you're selfishly doing things so that you can repair something that the world can't repair for you. He's beginning to take this turn and answer these three questions that, that are in the middle, kind of talking about, okay, you're friends with the world. And I want to let you know that friendship with the world means you're at odds with God. Right? That's what he's saying. And he's, he's leading them to this place to say, you're not going to find it down here. You know, you might, be, you might be completely shut down because of the way that you grew up and your way of regulating, your way of getting to Shalom 5-6. Or you have all of these strategies and you've looked for them all down here. And the Apostle Paul would say it this way. Don't look for it down there. Colossians 3 said, eyes heavenward. Since you've been raised with Christ, no longer down here. Your life is not down here. Your solutions aren't down here. You've been freed from these fragile solutions that you think will rescue you. And he goes on. He says, hey, this is what you've done in trying to self-regulate. This is what you've done in trying to adjust your life so that you could be, feel okay. Because we're all trying to work back to that place where I go, Man, I feel better. I can breathe. 
He says, you adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity or hostile towards God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Man, this is tough language. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell within us? So he's saying you're an adulterous people. What does that mean? It says that God's jealous for the spirit that dwells within you. He's, he's jealous for the thing that he's placed. He knows that you have the ability now that you're a believer and a follower of Jesus to do things a different way. And God is jealous for you to return to that place. And he mentions this friendship with the world. So we have to answer the question. So these, these are the three questions. I'm going to answer them kind of all together. So if you're taking notes, this is all going to be mixed in here. And you can kind of put it on your notes the way that you want. But what does it mean to be, that we're adulterous? What does it mean that God is jealous? And how in the world are we supposed to be? This friendship with the world idea. And John Piper gets around these terms really well. So I want to read this to you. He says, God is not jealous like an insecure employer that fears his employees might get lured away by a better salary elsewhere. Or I always think of some dude that's dating a girl that's really pretty and there's a lot of guys vying for attention and he's just jealous. He's like, he creates situations where you're not taking her from me. I've got this thing locked down. God's jealousy is not like that. It's not a reflex of weakness or fear. Instead, God's jealousy is like a powerful and merciful king who takes a peasant girl from a life of shame, forgives her, marries her, and gives her not the chores of a slave, but the privileges of a wife, a queen. His jealousy does not rise from fear or weakness, but from a holy indignation at having his honor and power and mercy scorned by the faithfulness of a fickle spouse. The Ten Commandments are not a job description for God's employees. Love this. They are wedding vows that a peasant girl takes to forsake all others and cleave to the king alone and to live in a way that brings no dishonor to his great name. We've walked away to, dis, to, to regulate. From the one thing and the one person, the one place that we can find shalom, the one place that despite what's going on around us, we can find shalom. We've, we've ceased to believe that God is the healer. We've ceased to believe that he is the restorer. We've ceased to believe that he can redeem. And that's what makes us adulterous. That's what makes us lock in and friendship with the world because we believe that that will save us. Have you ever, I mean, just to, to put it in terms of, I mean, in Hollywood, in the sports world, and, and in our own lives, I mean, we've all seen, watch it play out on TV. Like a guy's got a beautiful wife, got kids, got a great life. He's got everything. And then all of a sudden, he, he just to have a fling, an affair, six minutes of pleasure, he cheats on his wife, he cheats on his beautiful life, and, and just wrecks his life. Come on, Tiger Woods. Wrecks it all. And what do we do? We stand back and we go, idiot. I mean, she, she wasn't even close to the to go. She's prettier. She was way better looking. I mean, you just, we sit there and we're shocked that they walked away, that they wandered away from an amazing life. But that's what the, the enemy wants us to do. The, the enemy puts, puts our eyes and pushes our head down to the earth and says, this is going to fix it. That feeling you feel, that, that despondent feeling you feel, you're in the one-two zone. I've kind of checked out because of whatever reason. 
And I've become numb to the fact that I have a beautiful wife. I have two beautiful children. God's given me a lot. And I've just thought, I need something to fix this. And we wander and we walk away. How could, each, how could, how could that happen? It's what James is talking about. He's saying in verse 4 that we're not supposed to be friends with the world. Is James telling us to, you know, move away and get out of here? No, we're supposed to be here. We're supposed to understand where we are. But the summary of all three of these questions really is, he's asking, do you have another Savior and do you have another King? That's the problem. You're quarreling and fighting to get back to that place right here. And it's because you've got, you, you, you have another king that you've put on the throne. First of all, you put yourself on the throne and not Jesus. He's saying, do you have another savior? Is it success? How well you produce? Because if, if success is your, you know, if that becomes your savior, you are going to fight with people because people are going to get in the way of your success. I mean, is it the success of your children? Ooh. How well they do in sports? How well they play soccer or football or how well they surf or how well they do this? I mean, I've seen that fight break out with the parents that have kids that they think are going to light the world on fire with their athletics. You've been out on a sports field and seen parents quarreling and fighting? I mean, there's video after video after video on YouTube. You can look them up. Crazy people. I mean, I'm talking about dads and moms beating on referees and doing crazy stuff because they've put their child's performance in school and athletics in the, in the throne position. This is what's going to give me value. When they get here, I feel something inside and I'm right there at my 5'6 Shalom. Look at him run around. He's taking the He's hitting third base and he's coming home. I've got Shalom. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and we put, we put things in life in that place to save us. And James is saying when we do that, yes, you are going to war with one another. Over the resources of your happiness. You are going to war with one another over the goals that you have in life that you think will bring you back to that place that only God can bring you. That peace you're looking for is not going to happen in your marriage. We, in God's good gifts that he's given us, we make those things our regulators. And they never were meant to be. Marriage, a beautiful gift of God's common grace on planet earth. Good food or whatever it is. God's given us those things, people in our lives. God can use people in our lives to help us regulate through the gospel, to sharpen us, good roommates. He can, he can give us people along the way, but they were never meant to. Marriage is not going to save you. I mean, you young people, you just get in that place, you think, if I have her, if I have him, it's all going to happen. I can tell you right now, shalom ain't going to come from that guy. It is not going to be shalom in the home. He is not. He might be shaloming right now because guys, they try to, they shalom in the pursuit period. They are like, they are, they are good at bringing the five, six. Some are good. Some need a little work. But that is not what is meant to save you. Your marriage will not save you. Comfort, a lot of us look for success, money. It will all crumble and fall. It is fragile at best. It might temporarily bring you into that place. That is not what we were meant to be. That is not how we were meant to live. And it is what puts us at enmity with God and bouncing off of one another and fighting with one another. God wants us back in that place of no longer having a scarcity mentality. We go back to the place of being orphans and fighting for scraps on the floor. When we are no longer the peasant girl, we are married to the king. 
We're married to the king and we forget and we walk away trying to satisfy our heart with crumbs. But there's some good news here because what does it mean that he gives more grace in verse 6? He says, but he gives us more grace. That's why scripture says God opposes the proud and gives favor to the humble. He gives more grace. Dan mentioned this the other week. Although he is jealous, although he, James is calling us adulterous people, God knowing that we walk away, God knowing that we're prone to wander, God knowing that we will put things in that position to get to the five, six, we will, we will sin against him and sin against other people in order to get there. Yet he gives more grace. God is patient with you and patient with me. Here's the gospel. In Romans 5, I love this, 20 and 21. It says, The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. Where sin increased, grace increased. More grace. He gives more grace. Grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life. Through who? And only who? Jesus Christ our Lord. That's not like sin and grace are competing elements in life. You got sin that says we, we you keep you know, falling into sin and trying to regulate. And, you know, we got to try to figure out a way to make sure that grace wins and sin doesn't win. And we quit regulating with other things and we regulate with Jesus. And there's this competing fight between sin and grace. No, there's no, there is grace, the cross of Jesus Christ. It's an ocean of grace. It's not like Jordan versus LeBron. I mean, that's not sin and grace. It's like Jordan versus me. I mean, that's just more about, and, and maybe four fifth graders, you know, we're just doing it and he's just dunking all over us. That's the way that it is. God's grace dunks on sin. I'm telling you, there is, no, there is nothing, and, and that's the gospel right here in James saying, although this is your life, although you fight, although you go, I want to tell you where the solution is. The solution is not self-trying. The solution is not trying to figure out all the 18 different strategies to get regulated or the, the 18 different ways I can be nicer to them and I can, I can see things from their perspective. He's saying, look at yourself and see what perspective your lens you're looking through. He's saying, there is grace for you and me and God brings that grace And then he immediately says, where are you going to find hope? How are you going to stop fighting is the last question. He says in verse 7, submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. I love that the word resist is in here because sometimes people do think Christianity is this autopilot. Like, no, you got to resist. There's a a moment. The the beautiful thing about that scripture of, of, you know, sin and grace abounding all the more is before you were a believer, you had no choice but to regulate with everything that's down here. You had no option. You were left outside of the throne room. You were left outside of the Holy of Holies. You could not be in the presence of God. You could not, you didn't have access to the shalom that only Jesus brings. So what are we going to do? We're going to always try to fix it with everything that's down here. You had no shot. There was one doorway and it was the doorway of death. I'm going to leverage something else and put it on the throne in order to fix how I feel in life. And then all of a sudden, the the door of redemption swung wide open because of the cross of Jesus Christ. And when you put your faith in Jesus, all of a sudden, I've got an option to walk away from the slavery of fragile regulators. I can walk away from these things that will crumble and fall. They might temporarily work, but they will ultimately fail you or own you like addiction does. The door swings wide, the redemption door swings wide, and all of a sudden I have another option. Yes, I can still walk, stumble, and sin, and I do. 
But man, to have the redemption door that's wide that, that says, hey, for freedom Christ set you free, why would I submit again to a yoke of slavery? Galatians 5. I don't want to go back there. I want to go through the door of freedom. I don't want a fragile Savior. I don't want to put another Savior on the throne that is going to fail me. I want the Savior on the throne that can save, that can redeem, because it's Jesus, only Jesus. And what does he say? Resist, resist the devil and he will flee from you. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 13 says, There's nothing uncommon that you're going to go through, that the world goes through, that, that God doesn't give you an opportunity to walk away from through the power of the Holy Spirit. There's no, we can't sit back and go, the devil made me do it. God's given us a way, and we all have experienced that. It's this right now in this moment to regulate the five, six, or it's, I'm going to go to Jesus right now, and the Holy Spirit speaks to us. It's the committee. You've got the, the enemy speaking, and you've got the Holy Spirit going, don't do it. Walk this way. And we sometimes choose this way. But man, how glorious is it when we obey, we resist the devil. And he says, draw near to God. Number two. This is what I call gazing at Jesus. This drawing near to God and he will draw near to you is not this command. It's this beautiful opportunity where we remember how beautiful he is. You know, I've enjoyed during my sabbatical doing uh, a, a devotion on my phone. Beth and I have done it together uh, a lot over sabbatical and, and some of our friends have been doing it too. Uh, it's Lectio 365. I don't know if anybody's got that app. It's really good. Uh, it plays real ethereal music and it's kind of you know, got its own jam to it. I cry every time I listen to it and, um, and read it. it, just, it God's just worked in and through that. But it's one of those moments where you could be completely in a different zone and all of a sudden you come to the Word of God and it's got lots of Scripture in it. It leads you to this place where you remember how beautiful Jesus is and you remember that He is the one that can bring peace in the midst of difficult circumstances. When things are not right, and I'm telling you, I've sat down in the morning and things have been fractured, things have been broken, things have been not right. And Jesus so sweetly reminds me that he's the answer, that he is the one that can bring me to that place of peace so that I can lift my head and get back to the business of carrying his name to the ends of the earth. It's worship. It's coming to a place like this and and gazing on the beauty of the, 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 the Lord. It's date night, like I've said before. Don't look at it as this thing I have to do. It's that thing where you're setting aside time with your wife or your spouse, and you're like, we're going to set aside time, and we're going to look each other across the table and remember. We're going to remember how much we love each other. I'm going to remember how beautiful you are. And I need worship to lift my eyes and, and gaze on the beauty of the Lord. And you know what? It's amazing how quickly... It brings me back into that place of shalom and regulation. I get a glimpse. I prayed for that for this service today, that we would have a glimpse of the shalom of heaven. Because on earth, there is not shalom. But it's possible in you, because you have the power of the Holy Spirit, if you're a follower of Jesus, to, despite circumstances and despite the knuckleheads that, that move around around you, and you're one of those knuckleheads, you can have peace on planet earth. Yeah, in this life you'll have trouble, but take heart. He has overcome the world. Isaiah 9, 6 says this. Talk about the shalom giver, the ultimate regulator. It says, for us, it's a Christmas verse, for, us, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty. Listen to who he is. If this isn't a regulator to get you to 5, 6, he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. 
He's hope for the hopeless, rest for the weary, heals the broken, mends the brokenhearted. The cross of Jesus Christ was the only, it's, it's, it split history and it made a way, it opened a pathway for you and me to experience healing. To once and for all get, get to that place and have one place to go to. Jesus should be the first place that we go when we feel that we're dysregulated and something's fractured, something's wrong, and we will all feel it and we will walk through that. But our resource, our number one resource is to go to Him, go to the feet of Jesus. And you will find it. it you will never not find it. And you know what? He might use somebody in your life, but Jesus first. And God might use your friend that, that says something that encourages you, that brings you out for a glass of wine, hang out, and speaks life over you. God might do that, and you might go, man, I'm in the five, six, but that's because the Spirit of God descended on that table in that moment to bring you into that space of realizing that He is good, and He is the Redeemer, and He is the giver of all good gifts. And I'll just say as we end, if, if you don't know Jesus, I'm telling you, I, I, I'm not in this job because I thought this is a good job. I didn't wake up and go, man, I'm going to be a preacher. I love preaching. This is what I want to do. I'm in this not because I want to do it, but because there's nothing else that God will let me do. Because I believe every bit of what comes out of this filter of the word of God, that it's Jesus, only Jesus, that he saves and nothing else does. Nothing will regulate you. Nothing will bring you back into the space of saying, I've got hope. And there's something coming for me that will just absolutely dismantle the insecurities of your heart. It is Jesus, only Jesus. And it's not a religion. It's not a routine. It is a relationship with someone that can break you down into tears, looking up at his face and going, I can't believe you love me and you rescued me. And that I'm, I'm part of kingship royalty because of you he's speaking life over you and he's speaking to many of you saying it's time to come home let's stand God we love you we love your word we love how you lead us God we want to be a, a, a people that looks beyond our outward quarreling and fighting and asks the question where have I walked away from you where have I walked away from you? I want to be in that place of standing and believing that you can satisfy all my needs.